At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 30, The Late French Empire, 1945 to 1956. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So in this episode, we're going to take a high-level political, economic, diplomatic, and military examination of the late French Empire up until 1956. Much of what happened with the French Empire at this time was wrapped up with domestic French politics, so it's important to understand what was happening with France internally before we take a deep dive into looking at the wars in French Indochina and Algeria. As always, I apologize for any mispronunciations, as French is not my mother tongue. Additionally, don't forget to check out the pictures for this episode on the website. Naturally, I'm going to uh, touch on both Indochina and Algeria during this episode, but they will have future dedicated episodes of their own. So I'm not going to be going into detail and with regards to those two uh, conflicts. Uh, what we will be covering in this episode is the political machinations of the French Fourth Republic. Uh, some of these aspects we covered in episode 10, uh, but to provide continuity and clarity to this episode, I will recover some of that ground. That said, I will be giving much more depth on our information on the political side, and I will also be examining what happened to France's smaller holdings during this period, uh, such as Madagascar, Morocco, and Tunisia, along with how the, viewed, the French viewed their empire as a whole. The Fourth Republic essentially attempted to focus on domestic policy and tried to forget her colonies, ignore her colonies, or paper over her problems in her colonies. This, as we will see, led to disastrous consequences for both France and her colonies, ultimately wiping out what political and economic gains the Fourth Republic was able to achieve on the domestic level. The French Empire in 1945 was still the third largest empire in the world behind Great Britain and the Soviet Union. She had positions around the world, from the Caribbean and South America to most of West and North Africa, small holdings in India, most of Southeast Asia, and distant islands in the South Pacific. After World War II, the empire in essence remained a source of raw materials and markets for French goods and investments, and a potential fallback in case France was invaded by the Soviets. In the early post-war period as well, the empire helped to give France some political leverage vis-a-vis -vis the other great powers. Nevertheless, despite the best efforts of resistance fighters and the free French forces, France's liberation was only made possible by American, British, and Canadian forces, and France barely escaped becoming an allied administered ter territory like West Germany. The Americans and British waited until the last moment to diplomatically recognize free France, uh, hoping that the Vichy government might switch sides. As France was liberated, free French forces and the French resistance f fell upon the Vichy collaborators, informers, and black marketeers with a vengeance. There was an estimated 10,000 summary executions. 
Thousands of women had their heads shaved for being horizontal collaborators and for having German boyfriends. Some of the people, though, were innocent and were caught up in the communist efforts to revolutionize the nation. These actions were not approved by the Central Party, but were carried out by local communists working on their own. Policemen, factory owners, businessmen, and aristocrats were all targeted between 1944 and 1945 as enemies of the people, even if they had supported the resistance during the occupation. However, after the war, many in France were hopeful that France might be able to create a fairer, more efficient state. All 15 regimes since 1789 had each in turn been installed by revolution, military defeat, or coup, leaving deep divisions in society. It was hoped that with a new republic, they could escape the ghosts of the past and forge a united society. For much of the early period, 1944 to 1946, de Gaulle did enjoy popular support throughout much of French society on account of the war and the nation's united political will to defeat Germany, which stretched across the French political spectrum. Economically, as illustrated in past episodes, France was devastated after the war. The human cost of France was catastrophic. A half a million Frenchmen had died in the conflict. According to a hastily organized census, France had close to 41 million people after the war, the same number that she had had in 1899 and a million less people than 1936. Many of her citizens weren't even in France but scattered throughout Europe. It would take years for these people to return home, integrate back into society, and begin to rebuild their lives. Some 1.2 million French had been deported from France during the war by the Germans. 700,000 were sent to work in uh, German factories. 75,000 French were deported to death camps, whereas an additional 63,000 political prisoners and 50,000 common criminals were deported to work camps as well throughout Europe. Moreover, the citizens France had left she couldn't even feed. Rations were meager, falling to 2,400 calories. By 1945, 70% of French men and 55% of French women had lost weight, and one in three children were malnutritioned. Those born between 1938 and 1948 were on average physically stunted. Not until the mid-1950s did French youth begin to recover their strength. France tried to meet her manpower shortage through immigration from Poland, Italy, Spain, and Portugal, along with 510,000 German POWs who were pressed into rebuilding France after the war. Economically, the French economy had been struggling since 1931. The war only intensified France's economic challenges and added new ones. 74 departments, the French equivalent to a state or province, were ravaged by war in stark contrast to the 13 of World War I. A quarter of all of her buildings had been destroyed, and a million families were homeless. 460,000 homes were destroyed and a further 1.9 million damaged. Basic services like electricity, water, gas, and sanitation were barely operating. Transportation system was in shambles. The railways had been hit uh, badly by bombing raids as well as by sabotage as the resistance blew up many of the rails and trains to deny their use to the Germans. Of the pre-war 40,000 kilometers of track, only 18,000 kilometers were left operational. 115 of the 300 major train stations had been destroyed, and only one in six locomotives were still in working condition. Only one out of three stock cars were left, and 50% of the passenger carriages had been destroyed. The road system was in a similar state, with some 7,500 bridges destroyed. Only one in five trucks were still in running order. 
To add to these troubles, fuel for the trucks was in short supply. This resulted in a breakdown of the markets as regions became more economically isolated from one another and it was difficult to move goods to market. France's major uh, fuel source, coal, was also in short supply. The coal mines that France did have in northern France were nationalized and the CEO and board of directors were dismissed. However, on the positive side, the barge system was more or less intact and the merchant marine was capable of carrying 40% of its pre-war traffic. Nevertheless, French industry had been wrecked from the war. The newest machines and industry had been taken to Germany during the occupation, much of which remained dated uh, from the 1920s and was obsolete. Industrial production was only 38% of what it had been in 1938. French farmers were short of fertilizer and suffered bad harvests as a result of droughts in 1947 with one of the smallest grain harvests since the 19th century. The Ministry of Reconstruction estimated that it would cost some 5 billion francs or two to three years of France's pre-war GDP to rebuild a nation. Early estimates for rebuilding the road system alone were at 20% of the 1945 state budget. All of this physical and economic destruction helped lead to political instability, especially as the unifying cause of the war, Germany's defeat, had ended. Workers called for a rise in wages, and which had been held in check during the war as the French working class was struggling to feed themselves off of what little they were being paid. Much of this problem had to do with inflation, which had been an issue since the 1930s, but which had exploded with the war. Between 1936 and 1945, retail prices had quadrupled. On top of this, France was bound to suffer a trade imbalance as she had very little to trade but needed machinery, coal, and capital goods to rebuild her economy. Other industries which had traditionally brought in foreign currencies like tourism and, and shipping were also greatly depressed as a result of the war. By 1944, the deficit had grown to 300 million francs and the debt stood at almost 2 billion francs. By 1945, France had only 65 million left in her reserves. The government moved quickly to stabilize the French economy. A social security system was established, which also covered foreign workers. It also covered the handicapped, death, and, accidental, and accidents at work. A daily sickness allowance was established, which also reimbursed 80% of medical costs, uh, the right to a pension, and a death insurance policy were established. The communists moved quickly to have the government take over industries and have workers seize their factories. In Marseille, 15 companies were seized by unions and were controlled by them until 1948. In many ways, the central government and de Gaulle allowed these moves by the communists as they wanted to hold the government together until the war could be concluded. The banking sector was also nationalized in late 1945 as the government became a majority shareholder of the four principal deposit banks. However, de Gaulle stopped the communists from nationalizing the entire credit system, and smaller deposit and commercial banks escaped nationalization. The insurance markets were, however, nationalized in 1946. Workers' councils were also established in every company with more than 100 employees, a move backed by both the communists and socialists. The idea was there these workers' councils would improve company work, worker relations and hence boost production. In practice, they achieved very little as labor and business continued to clash and owners ignored the council's suggestions. It's important to emphasize that though these policies provided some relief, they could not compensate for the devastating effects of hyperinflation or the structural problems of the French economy. 
the average Frenchman worked longer hours, 40 to 45 a week, as a result of the labor shortage and inflation, but was paid about 30% less than he was in the 1930s during the Great Depression. De Gaulle and the provisional French government, despite the economic struggles and recent military defeats, was intent on pursuing the greatness of France on the international scene. De Gaulle had three main goals to achieve this perceived greatness. The first was to restore France to its 1939 borders. Second was to participate in the post-war settlement. And third was to neutralize Germany as a future threat to France. De Gaulle was optimistic for an alliance with the Soviet Union as a measure against future German, a future German threat and to gain leverage in negotiations with the British and Americans. Stalin met with de Gaulle in late 1945 and did sign a defensive pact against Germany in exchange for de Gaulle's endorsement of Stalin's position in Eastern Europe. But ultimately, uh, Stalin thought de Gaulle wasn't a realistic guy and that France was all washed up. Adding to French political humiliation, France was invited to none of the big post-war conferences like Yalta and Potsdam. It's like de Gaulle and many of the French would never forgive. On the other hand, the Americans and British did allow the French to occupy part of Germany, but not the zone she wanted like the industrial Ruhr with its factories and coal mines, but parts of the Rhineland with very little industrial value. France wanted to see Germany permanently divided with regions ceded to France. However, the Americans saw things differently and the French were powerless to stop the Americans from rebuilding West Germany. The Americans saw Germany as a vital piece to rebuilding Europe's economy and as a buffer to the Soviet Union. Like Russia, France was fearful of a revived Germany, which had invaded France three times in the last 70 years. In 1945, French politics were essentially divided between the Free French forces led by de Gaulle and the former resistance led by the communists. The communists wanted to establish a new revolutionary state. During the occupation and after the war, many French had joined the Communist Party out of desperation, cynicism, and it is a desire to try something new. Liberal democracy, especially in reference to France, had failed catastrophically in the 1930s. De Gaulle and the provisional French government wanted to restore the French centralized state and the bureaucracy. De Gaulle and the communists had di different but not insurmountable goals. The French Third Republic was blamed for the defeat in 1940 and was ended in favor of creating a new French Republic. All the former members of the Third Republic who had voted in favor of establishing the Vichy government in 1940 were banned from serving in government for life. However, only 5,000 French bureaucrats were removed from office. Thus, this, the myth of the French resistance was born. De Gaulle declared that the vast majority of French had either joined the resistance or joined the Free French Forces. Those who did not actively resist German occupation detested the Vichy regime and German occupation. Historically, however, we know this is, not, this is false, as thousands of French actively worked with the Germans and the Vichy regime. De Gaulle wanted the new Fourth Republic to have a strong president, similar to the United States. De Gaulle believed France's lack of a strong executive was the reason the nation fell in 1940. However, many of the French dis disagreed, and France became a parliamentary republic as before. De Gaulle was also unhappy with political parties forming as he saw them as divisive. Therefore, he stepped down in the belief that the French people would panic and call him back, and he would get what he wanted. De Gaulle was right. This would happen, but not in the time frame he has expected. It wouldn't be until 1958 when he was called out of retirement. Meanwhile, the French people had approved a new government by national referendum, despite de Gaulle's objections. The Fourth Republic was a parliamentary democracy, much like the Third Republic. 
In many ways, it was designed to ward off the danger of a revolution by the communists on the left and the danger of a dictatorship by de Gaulle on the right. However, to be fair to de Gaulle, despite these accusations, we have found no historical evidence that he harbored dictatorial ambitions. This was more so the ghost of France's political past and fears of Napoleon, who had managed to return from the dead, politically speaking, twice in 1815 and again in 1848 through his nephew, Louis Napoleon, or Napoleon III. In many ways, the Fourth Republic struggled to maintain a status quo. The smaller centrist parties of the MRP, or uh, Christian Democrats, radicals, moderates, and socialists faced an inescapable need to form coalitions despite their divergent views. They formed governments that tackled specific challenges or crises. Once a new challenge or crisis loomed, that majority would quickly crumble as it was politically incapable of handling the new crisis, and the process would start yet again. The government was very careful not to call too many general elections as to not allow one of the extremist parties to win a majority. When governments collapsed, new alliances were arranged amongst the smaller centrist parties and new leaders chosen amongst them. De Gaulle was right, though. The Fourth Republic would go on to be very unstable, having 21 different ruling governments from 1946 to 1958. That's an average of 1.7 governments a year for 12 years. The system rested upon a process of parliamentary rules, party bosses, and political coalitions. Despite the rise and fall of individual ministers, these alliances held power for longer periods of time under the surface. Many key figures would hold the same key positions uh, in successive governments. Any prime minister could be brought down by a handful of deputies or a disciplined splinter group, and a new majority would have to reform. The main objective for most politicians was to more to evade issues than to solve them, as attempting to solve issues might quickly end your political career. The first government of this new system was a tripart alliance of the Communist, Socialist, and the MRP. The French Empire had contributed greatly to the French war effort in both the First and Second World Wars. Thousands of colonial subjects had served in the French army in both wars, and the natural resources of the empire fueled the French war machine. However, as we saw in the British and Dutch empires, many of her colonial subjects wanted their independence, or at the very least, greater liberties and an end to unequal and racist treatment under the French Empire. The war had fundamentally weakened the empire. France lacked the military and economic capacity she had in the 1930s to maintain a far-flung empire. Moreover, ideologically, it had undermined the unity of the empire. The French humiliation at the hands of Japanese during the war helped to break the myth of white racial superiority, especially in the case of Vietnam. Moreover, many indigenous nationalist movements had received American military and political support during the war, such as Ho Chi Minh. Later, China and India became powerful critics of France's colonialism, not to mention the Soviet Union. In Tunisia, nationalist movements were gaining popular support. Algeria as well had seen a growth in nationalism since 1943, as many nationalist Algerians called for a Muslim assembly and greater autonomy from metropolitan France, and rioting broke out in May of 1945 in support of greater autonomy. Before the war ended in 1944, the French organized a conference about the future of the empire at Brazilville. The conference sought to consider the post-war uh, relations of the colonies to the metropole, not the liberties or future independence of their subjects' peoples. 
DeCaul declared that the Africans still needed to be raised to a level where they could participate in the running of their own affairs. The conference also called for an end to forced labor, changes in customs duties, industrial development, and a new emphasis on education. It also called for greater respect for civil liberties and a rejection of a centralized federal imperial administration, lifting the hopes of many colonial peoples. Nevertheless, many were opposed to these measures, such as the French colonists, imperial administrators, uh, along with big business and the French colonial lobby. Some initiatives, however, were taken, and in March 1944, equality for French and Muslim employees was established for public employment. The Algerians uh, were also given some ability to vote in local elections. Yet even with these initiatives, the fate of the empire in the post-war world was unclear. The creation of the French Fourth Republic and the departure of de Gaulle, the French Union, was established. Under this new system, France, as before, remained the capital and led, lead nation of the empire. Algeria received a special status, and the colonies' uh, positions remained unchanged. France's colonial subjects would receive citizenship and the French Union, but they would not be French citizens. The president of France, by default, was the head of the French Union. Despite the creation of a ceremonial council, all legislative authority rested with the French Assembly. Federation, independence, and greater political liberties were all rejected in favor of some high rhetoric and an imperial facelift, but nothing really changed with the substance of the empire. Still fearful of Germany, France signed a new defense treaty also with Britain in 1947. The new government had wanted to remain neutral between the Soviet Union and the West, but France couldn't rebuild their economy without American aid. So the French Republic moved into the orbit of the United States in order to secure these funds. It was less of a deliberate choice versus an act of survival. The U.S. also came up with the funds uh, to enable France to pay for essential goods until the Marshall Plan came into effect. But this aid didn't come without strings attached. The Americans insisted on the French balancing their budget, keeping inflation under control and opening their markets to free trade. All barriers to American exports and investment had to be removed. The French, for example, were forced to remove the limits on the number of films imported from America. The Americans also made it clear to the French the communists had to be removed from, from office for funds to be made available. The economy continued to be a problem in 1947. Rationing and the black market both grew as inflation continued to push prices higher. The government responded by slashing defense spending and subsidies, along with cuts to the public sector, along with a state-imposed 10% cut in pricing. The efforts ultimately failed, and the winter of 1947 was quite harsh. Hunger continued to grow along with prices, and the state's uh, reserves continued to dwindle. American loans had to be used for day-to-day -day expenses versus reconstruction. The spring of 1948 saw bread riots. The bread ration was reduced yet again, and bakers were closed on Sundays. Strikes were quickly spread to the press in Paris and the Renault car factories, and May Day saw large demonstrations throughout France. The government caved to the demands of the Renault workers, but this only escalated the situation as gas and electric workers walked off the job for higher wages. Eventually, the government agreed to a rise in the minimum wage, which was backed by the communists, which brought the strike to an end. Despite these attempts to stabilize the situation, they were at best temporary measures as inflation continued to soar. Between January and July 1947, the money supply grew by 40% and wages by 47%, while retail prices grew by 93%. The Bloom government initiated an interesting economic plan to try to tackle this challenge known as the first five-year plan. 
It was argued that France had fallen behind demographically, economically, and technologically dating back to the 1930s. Excessive administrative costs and protectionism had also exacerbated these problems. The plan was a combination of both Keynesian economics and free market liberalism. The plan would focus on French industry and exports, with aims at achieving full unemployment and improved living conditions. The idea was heavy government investment and heavy industry would restart the economy, and then the government would drastically scale back its involvement, allowing the private sector to take the lead. Jean Monat, a uh, cognac trader and English-speaking businessman, was brought in to lead the project. Experts were sought from all the industries involved in addition to academics. They studied wartime production methods in the United States and advanced statistical methods used by the Vichy regime to deal with shortages as a basis for their economic plan. Before economic research was given priority in the new plan, it was clear that for France to compete with the other great powers such as the Soviet Union and Great Britain, technology was an indispensable aspect of economic growth and military power. Atomic energy and mechanisms to stop French demographic decline were at the top programs for investment. Smaller but significant investment was also made in developments of agriculture, communications technology, television, and aeronautics. The plan also called for the creation of an academy to train civil servants to create a class of trained civil servants ready for the government jobs versus recruiting from colleges. Uh, Their students were taught a range of subjects with a focus on Keynesian economics. Most of these students wouldn't reach positions of authority, though, until the mid-1950s. The plan, however, did not address the housing shortage or deal with the agricultural needs in any way. Despite the introduction of the five-year plan, continuing economic issues brought down the government as the communists engineered its fall from behind the scenes. The communists decided that the Bloom government no longer served their needs as the Trotsky party was attacking their base of support in the uh, in the workers trying to recruit their members and painting the communists as sellouts. The Bloom government didn't help its position either as it spawned a number of corruption scandals. Many were afraid that the communists would try and take over with all the economic and political chaos. It was believed that the communists still had weapons hidden away from, resi- from the re- resistance days, and the government put a loyal portion of the army on high alert just in case. That May, the center-right parties removed the communists from power, mostly as a result of American pressure, but also because of the threat they represented to the republic. The communists knew, though, any attempts by them to take Paris and the government by force would be met with American and British military intervention. Their prospects for a takeover, like in Eastern Europe, weren't as good, and it's unclear if she could overcome the French army, and France had American forces stationed there. Soviet forces were hundreds of miles away, and it was doubtful the Soviets would risk World War III to install a French communist state. Their dismissal from government came as a shock, and in uh, the beginning, it wasn't clear that this was not a temporary measure, but a permanent exile to the political wilderness, which would endure to the present day. The socialists stayed in government despite their concerns that cutting ties with the Communist Party would reflect on them negatively with the working class, as the communists were very popular at the time. Meanwhile, the government faced a new threat, de Gaulle. De Gaulle worried about the dangers of another world war and formed a new political following known as the RPF. It wasn't a party in the traditional sense as de Gaulle rejected the concept of parties. It was more so a loosely coordinated social movement slash political personality cult. De Gaulle called for a decline of the state's role in the economy. He also took a harder line against the communists as lackeys of the Kremlin. 
He fully backed the harsh military measures taken to retain the empire. Lastly, de Gaulle called for a greater degree of political independence from the Western Bloc. He argued France should be a strong power that stands with the West, but not subordinate uh, in a subordinate role to, to that of Great Britain and the United States. The RFP attracted members of the center-right in French politics, de Gaulle's fan base, along with some of the far right, and those who had supported the Vichy regime. The movement grew quickly and by December 1947 had some 800,000 members. The Communists and the MRP and other French parties warned their followers that de Gaulle was another Louis Napoleon in the making. Nevertheless, as France was dealing with the troubles at, at home, the empire needed attention. Madagascar became a region of discontent. Widespread famine had affected the island and forced labor continued despite the proclamations of a new constitution. The nationalist movement in Madagascar formed a party in 1946, the MDRM, or the Democratic Movement of Revolution for Madagascar. The party quickly became popular, winning local elections and becoming popular with liberals and progressives in France. They quickly came to control the trade unions and marginalized the smaller nationalist parties in the island with some 30,000 members. For a while, it looked as though the MDRM might be able to achieve a peaceful accommodation with the French Union. However, many Madagascarans wanted to take more extreme positions, and in the spring of 1947, an insurrection broke out, led by Madagascarans who had served in the French army during the war. They hoped that the United States would aid their cause, but the United States remained neutral. At this point, I think it's important to take a step back and look at the state of the French army. The French army in the post-war period in many ways was a mess. Thanks to the efforts of de Gaulle, the Allies had equipped some 300,000 men. The bulk of the French army came from her colonies. These divisions had suffered heavy casualties, though, as they had been in heavy combat since the landings with the Allies in June 1944 and were exhausted by the summer of 1945. This force was augmented after the war with some 120,000 former resistance fighters. The inclusion of these forces into the army changed the organization from one of being a small professional force to that of a semi-civilian organization. The makeup of, of the army also changed as it varied greatly from age, class, and political views. These men had to be taught discipline. They had to be supplied, armed, fed, and taught the rudiments of logistics. The army also had way too many officers. They had some 38,500 officers for only 1,300,000 1, men by 1946. Moreover, the officer corps was composed of five competing groups. Those from the Army of the Third Republic, who had been defeated in 1940 and spent the war in German POW camps, the officers of the French Colonial Army, the officers of the French Free Army, and those who, who had served with de Gaulle, and those who had pledged loyalty to the Vichy regime, and the officers of the French Resistance. Thus, there was a pruning of the officer corps. 700 officers were dismissed outright or given early retirement. The majority of those cut were resistance army officers who wanted to reshape the French army along socialist and, and or communist lines. By 1946, the number of officers had been brought down to 22,000, and by 1947, only some 4,000 uh, uh, served with the French resistance uh, versus the high of 25,000 in 1945. As an interesting side note, during this period, some 30,000 ex-Germans were recruited to fight for the French and the French Foreign Legion. Unlike the Dutch in Indonesia or the British as we have seen in Malaya, 
the French sent volunteers to fight in Indochina. Those who, of you who may not be familiar with the French Foreign Legion, it is a mercenary army maintained by the French composed of foreigners who want to escape their old lives and create a new identity. The Legion still exists today, and if you want to see combat, uh, the Legion is still accepting volunteers. Starting in 1944, the Legion began to recruit Italians and Austrians from POW camps in North Africa to fight for the Legion. And in 1946, recruitment was opened to former German combatants. Some of these soldiers were veterans from the Second World War. Others were young 18-year-old kids who had been drafted in the last days of the war and were eager to escape the squalor of POW camps. Many Waffen-SS men are also said to have escaped punishment for war crimes by joining the Legion and changing their identities. There is much argument around this, but it does seem that at least a small number of Waffen-SS men joined the Legion. There is additionally some confusion between the foreign SS who joined and German SS who joined the Legion. During the war, the SS had recruited troops to fight in special SS foreign detachments. Many of these men were Polish, Russian, and French themselves who couldn't return home, so they joined the Legion. The Legion experienced an influx of ex-British servicemen as well who were still looking for adventure uh, after the war. Beyond the reforms, the army was also scaled back in 1946. France just didn't have the money to maintain the traditional standing army she had for centuries. The army survived off old stocks, what the government would give them, and whatever aid the Americans would supply. Naturally, morale of the French army was very low during this period. The government also ranked army pay to those in the civil service, meaning that on average, male men made more than a French lieutenant. This helped to reduce the quality of the French army and would contribute to the defeat in Vietnam and in the Algerian coup in 1958. As the army felt disrespected and abandoned by the French political politicians and society in general. Before we get back to Madagascar, I want to take a quick moment here to thank all of our supporters. Without you, this show wouldn't be possible. I want specifically to mention today uh, Tony Dorfum, uh, Daniel Just, and Richard Kreitz as some of our newest contributors. Forgive me if I mispronounced anyone's name. We get a lot of feedback about making longer episodes and moving the show to a once-a-week basis, and I would love to quit my job and work on the podcast full-time, but financially that's just not a poss possible at this point. Um, the reason I, I can only produce two episodes a month is because of the research and writing required. Each episode takes between 10 to 15 hours to make, with some taking longer. I know you guys love all the detail that goes into each episode, but that requires a lot of time, which is all done by me, one person. So if you really want this show to become weekly and have longer episodes, please contribute through our website. If you can, we would prefer you become a monthly $5 contributor through Patreon or contribute whatever you, amount you feel you can. Beyond your financial help, the biggest thing you could do is help spread the word. Have an episode you like? Repost it to Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends about us or give us a positive review on iTunes to get the message out so that we can get more listeners and maybe some ad revenue. Again, thank you for your continued support, and now back to the show. Back in Madagascar, the insurgents quickly seized the south and center of the island. The French government rejected negotiations and chose to crush the rebellion, and an expeditionary force of 18,000 was dispatched to the island from France. The repression which followed was exceptionally brutal. Crack troops of the Para and the Legion were allowed to comb the bush as summary executions and torture and rape were standard rules of engagement. 
Both sides practiced brutality during the war, but the French, with their greater technological capabilities, devastated the Madagascarans. The MDRM ultimately lacked the supplies and resources to fight a prolonged fight and eventually succumbed to superior French forces. By their defeat in 1948, some 550 Europeans and 89,000 natives had died in the fighting. Morocco had also become a challenge for the French government in the spring of 1947. The sultan, who normally read a prepared speech which praised French rule, went off script and omitted any mention of France and extolled the virtues of the Arab League. The controversy that ensued resulted in the dismissal of the liberal resident general, Eric Laban, and his replacement by the general and later marshal, Juan. Juan was the last marshal of France, uh, was a hardliner, and was very popular with French colonists. Issues started to boil over in Tunisia as well. A nationalist underground movement was beginning to gain ground. Reforms that had been announced by the local administration had failed to materialize, and France continued to insist on direct administration from Paris. A strike at Sifix over low wages generated into rioting, and troops were brought in to crush the demonstration, resulting in the deaths of 29 people. By May, one of the leading figures of the nationalist movement, Bergouda, uh, pictured on the website, uh, set up the North African Liberation Committee, and the Arab League began to support the nationalist aspirations of Arabs across North Africa. Unlike the British in India and Malaya, or the Dutch in Indonesia, the French had a sizable population of colonists, and Algeria was considered a part of, uh, of France the way Alaska and Hawaii are considered part of the U.S., making decolonization for the French in North Africa much more complicated and protracted. Colonists felt they had rights to occupy these lands as they had lived there for generations, and they weren't going to give up without a fight. About 10% of the French population was located in Algeria. Many French were concerned, though, with the hard line the government was taking in Madagascar and North Africa. They felt that the opportunity for peaceful negotiations with her subject peoples were slipping away as a result of these violent actions. That December, for the first uh, meeting of a ceremonial assembly of the French Union held at the Versailles, saw no participation from the rest of the empire. Back in France, the socialist government led by Remer uh, collapsed. Efforts at controlling prices drove produce off the store shelves and into the black markets as inflation continued to rage out of control. People were still struggling to survive as the cost of basic goods and food tripled. Shortages and high prices led to riots in Verdun and Las Mans. This was quickly followed by strikes in the public sector, the industrial sector, banks, retail, and transport, which exacerbated the existing economic conditions. That summer, the government offered an 11% increase to ease the tensions, but that fall saw bitter, violent confrontations between striking miners and government forces. These events saw the government lose working-class support, but gain the support of the middle class. Moreover, their brutal social confrontation made it even harder for the French government to break ties with the United States. In Eastern Europe, meanwhile, the opposition parties in Bulgaria, Hungary, and Poland were eliminated. As tensions flared between the Western powers and the Soviet Union, the French Communist Party, once a strong force for political stabilization, was now a destabilizing force as Stalin sought to use it as a tool in his attempt to end the Marshall Plan. Some French Communist members openly called for Soviet tanks to liberate the nation. Communist counter-society was present at every level of French society. Communist social clubs and youth groups could spread the news and organize the followers under even the worst conditions. 
In the years to come, the communists would lead demonstrations against American imperialism, the war in Indochina, and against class enemies, which became a staple of French political life. Communist intellectuals would be extremely active in the various peace movements, and the party became a champion of decolonization. The subsequent election was violent as Gaullists and communists clashed in the streets. The Gaullists captured 38% of the vote as they dominated the French cities. The MRP, or the Christian Democratic Party, lost 10% of its votes but retained its Catholic strongholds. The left remained more or less unchanged. The socialists retained most of their support. Communists still did well as they won 30% of the votes. After the election, politically, France was divided between three political factions, the Gaullists, Communists, and parties of what came to be known as the Third Force. The MRP and Socialists pooled their votes to form a new center-right government since they viewed both the Gaullists and Communists as threats to the Republic. By the spring of 1948, Marshall Plan funds started to stabilize the economic situation in France. Between April 1948 and January 1952, France received some $2,629,000,000 in aid, of which $2,120,000,000 were free grants. The French received in all 20% of total American aid to Europe. Only Britain received more aid, and Italy and Germany received far less. Moreover, American control over how the funds were distributed was minimal, left for the most part for French officials to decide. The first five-year plan was also a success. French production exceeded 1929 production levels by 25% by 1949. Coal production increased from 47 million to 65 million tons. Electric output rose from 23 million to 37 million kilowatts, and steel production grew from 4 to 10 million tons. Exports doubled. However, it's important to emphasize that this plan would not have worked without Marshall Plan funds, which were used to make the investments into these industries. In 1947, 53% of the five-year plan funds came from the Marshall Plan. In 1949, uh, the figure rose to 72%. 1950, 53%, although it fell to 16% by 1951. The transportation network, which had been so heavily damaged during the war, was quickly rebuilt, equipped with better trains, and was handling greater, a greater volume than 1929. Unemployment was virtually non-existent, and most people were working 45-hour weeks, with 48-hour weeks not unheard of in some sectors. However, the plan also called for cuts in public services and tax increases to reduce the deficit and combat inflation. Direct taxation grew from 263 million francs in 1948 to 554 million in 1950. With these actions, the state had some measure of success in slowing inflation and shrinking the deficit. Nevertheless, long-term policies to control inflation and streamline the budget were undermined by the cost of the war in Indochina and the political instability of the regime and the danger in cutting government services or raising taxes. By 1953, GNP had risen 39% higher than 1946 levels and 19% higher than 1938 levels. With the national growth average at 4.5%, the household income rose 2.4% between 1938 and 1950. Food supplies were no longer an issue, but mass consumption had not returned. The economic recovery was less dramatic than Italy or Germany, but at the time still impressive. The results of scientific research were disappointing, but it could be argued that it helped to slow France's decline as a scientific and technological power. 
The production of consumer goods had also fallen as the plan stressed heavy industry, and many essential goods were still in short supply. Housing and agriculture also lagged behind. By 1952, two out of five farms and had incomes below the poverty line. Apart from tractors and chemical fertilizers, the plan had offered very little to help farmers. As a result of American aid and growing tensions with the Soviet Union over the Berlin blockade and the subsequent Korean War, the French government joined NATO. In the summer of 1946, France had only 600,000 troops, which may seem like a lot, but as, of, but we, as you will remember, the Soviet Union still had around four, 4 million, so France saw the NATO alliance and American atomic shield as the only possible guarantor of France's immediate security against any possible Soviet invasion. Many in France were unhappy with this political arrangement. They felt as though France had become a colony of the United States as a result of the Marshall Plan funds and the NATO alliance. detested the United States and accused America of economic and cultural imperialism, whereas many on the right hated the arrangement as well but regarded it as a necessity uh, or as a necessary evil to fend off the Soviet Union and the French Communist Party. In 1952, 45% of French believed that France should take no part in a war between the Soviet Union and the United States. However, during most of this period, the debate remained amongst politicians and intellectuals, as most French were still struggling to rebuild their lives in the wake of the war and occupation. Moreover, realistically, France didn't have the wealth or the military to forge a politically neutral path. The political reality was she needed to choose a political camp. Nevertheless, the extreme politics of 1945 through 1947 started to wane by late 1948 as economic conditions improved as a result of the Marshall Plan. Some 400,000 people left the Communist Party between 1947 and 1952, although some of this could be attributed to the unpopular actions taken by the communists in Eastern Europe. The right also lost much of its appeal. The RFP was running low on funds, and de Gaulle was barred from speaking on the radio. The movement also seemed contradictory to many French as well. How could France be independent and yet a member of NATO? How could labor and management cooperate after the violence of the preceding three years? RFP membership had fallen from 800,000 in 1948 to 350,000 by 1951. With the left weakened, the center-right came to dominate the French uh, Fourth Republic until its collapse in 1958. The MRP had a strong Catholic backing, along with women, managers, liberal professors, and civil servants, but lacked the support of the young and peasants. The socialists saw much of their support drained by the communists and Trotskyites, and they took increasingly as they took increasingly unpopular stances amongst the working class. As such, their role in each subsequent government coalition was smaller and smaller. Despite these changes in government, though, France still lacked an imperial policy, or for that matter, a clear long-term foreign policy. Even though the French Union had come under criticism by the United Nations in 1949, the government was content to run the day-to-day -day affairs and deal with problems as they arose in an ad hoc manner. Only Francois Mitran attempted to establish a dialogue with black Africans about conditions in the empire. Mitran believed it was dangerous for the French to ignore what was happening to the Dutch in Indonesia and the British in India. In 1950, Tunisian nationalists under Bugarda uh, presented a seven-point plan for political development. The plan found support amongst the socialists and communists, but the French community in Tunisia mobilized against it. French political right, center, military, and press 
backed the French colonists and forced the government to end negotiations with the nationalists. This resulted in riots, and the Tunisian nationalists called for complete independence for Tunisia and brought the matter to the United Nations. January 1952 saw the French remove the liberal resident Perrier uh, by Jean de Hedeclou, a hardliner popular with French colonists, which led to a general strike and riots followed by police crackdowns, which resulted in the deaths of 200 civilians. In August, the nationalists formed an alternative government, and events were quickly slipping out of control as the UN, including the United States, opposed France's decisions in Tunisia. Violence spread throughout the country. The resident general was replaced, but this did nothing to stem the violence, and France faced the stark choice of suppressing the rebellion or negotiating with the nationalists. While in Morocco, Marshal Juin was left a free hand to run the country. He harshly repressed the nationalists and communists. The sultan subsequently rejected a plan offered by the government for co-sovereignty. In December, Juin had the nationalists removed from Moroccan government, leading to a further escalation of the situation. In 1951, Marshal Dion was recalled to France, and General Dion was, was placed in charge, but he proved to be ineffective. The Arab states soon took the issue to the United Nations. The Sultan, in March 1952, called for a new government and reforms. Paris rejected this proposal, and strikes and protests broke out across Morocco. Guillaume responded by having all the nationalist leaders arrested, arguing the unrest was a communist plot. He subsequently surrounded the capital city, Rabat, and had the sultan arrested and exiled first to Corsica and later to Madagascar and proclaimed a new puppet sultan. However, this only made the old sultan, Ben Yusuf, a martyr, and violence continued to plague Morocco. Government in Paris wasn't consulted beforehand and was shocked by Guillaume's decision. In a split decision, the government backed his actions, but it was clear to most the government was losing control of the situation. 1953 saw an easing of Cold War tensions with the death of Stalin. The Korean War came to an end, and it looked as though the war in Europe had been avoided. France was f felt it was possible to pr pursue a path of peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union and the West. Nevertheless, the Cold War's focus just shifted to the developing world as decolonization accelerated, and France found her foreign policy problems only growing. The communists were dis disrupting the flow of supplies to Indochina and fielded large demonstrations when General Ridgway, the newly appointed commander of NATO, arrived in France. The Catholic Church also came out against France's wars in Indochina and North Africa on humanitarian grounds, led by French Catholic youth groups and Catholic French intellectuals, putting considerable pressure on the MRP. France still also feared Germany, which the Americans wanted to make a member of NATO and rearm. In 1954, 45% of French still preferred that Germany be kept weak and unarmed. A European army was floated as a possible alternative, but the entry of China into the Korean War in 1950 and the French reliance on American aid made it impossible for France to stop the rearming of Germany. The economy at home was also suffering again as a result of the war as deficit spending rose and inflation began to rise yet again. Unemployment for the first time since 1948 approached 100,000, and many people, including civil servants, couldn't afford the price of goods. 1953 witnessed a general strike in the public sector, which brought France to a standstill. This was followed by strikes in coal and steel, and by August 9th, the 15th, some 15 million people were on strike. However, unlike strikes of the past, it was more or less peaceful. 
right-wing movement known as Brugetism spread across France, and it was with the backing of the communists, it attacked the government as oppressive and corrupt. The group was comprised of small businessmen who had done well in the past post-war period as a result of shortages and inflation, who are now struggling in the better economy. The high taxes of the new government plan were squeezing them as inflation slowed. They were also composed of French imperialists, French colonists, farmers, and environmentalists who opposed the industrialization of the French countryside. It might seem strange to remember, but environmentalists could be found in the right-wing politics uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. There was a regional element as well to the Pugetists that despised Parisian technocratic rule and wanted more local autonomy. The movement was led by Pierre Pouget, who is pictured on the website, a charismatic uh, orator and canny populist, as some three million flocked to his banner. His followers also included anti-Semites, racists, xenophobics, and those who hated the parliamentary system of the Fourth Republic. Nevertheless, Pouget was not a serious threat to the Republic like, say, de Gaulle, because he offered little in the way of policies. He argued for things like bringing back the estates general and abolition of public political parties and corporations in favor of self-employment. As the Algerian crisis grew, though, Pujade used the conflict to fuel his movement. Given all this political opposition, the government fell, and a 36-day interregnum began, the longest of the French Fourth Republic, as the assembly struggled to find a new coalition and leader to tackle the growing economic and foreign policy challenges, and rumors of a military coup grew. New government that was established was, however, short-lived and brought down by the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu and was replaced by the charismatic Mendes France. Mendes sought to negotiate a settlement in French Indochina and to bring about a settlement in North Africa. Upon achieving these goals, he planned on restabilizing the economy. Mendes argued for transcending the traditional left and right paradigms of politics, which he argued were irrelevant and outmoded. Instead, France would focus on détente and neo-capitalism. With a controlled economy, a dynamic public sector, and scientific and technological growth emphasized. The youth were enthusiastic for his message, and many French invested a lot of hope in him. At Geneva, he threatened to send more troops if they could not reach a peace deal with the Vietnamese by his proposed July the 20th deadline. Mendes was able to get a ceasefire, but while he might have scored political points at home, it was clear diplomatically that France had suffered a major defeat. France joined CETO and worked towards the recognition of communist China as an attempt to paper over her losses of influence in Asia. Following this was a dramatic trip to Tunisia, where he declared that France was ready to recognize the internal autonomy of Tunisia and ready to transfer sovereignty. He traveled to Germany and met Adenauer, declaring that a Paris bond axis was the basis of his new European policy. Nonetheless, there was very little substance to what he had done, but that summer he was seen as a diplomatic superman. With the war over in Indochina, the economy began to stabilize. Inflation came under control and economic growth revived. He also invested into housing and education and scientific research. He created many enemies, though. The French settlers were unhappy about the concessions he was looking to make in North Africa, and the far-right and military were displeased about the defeat in in Indochina. Meanwhile, with violence still plaguing Morocco, Algeria exploded in a wave of violence, which brought down the Mendes government. 
1955, the new government was able to achieve an agreement with Tunisia, establishing an internal autonomy of Tunisia while protecting the rights of the European community and providing for French military bases with a French say in Tunisian defense and foreign policy. It also recognized Tunisia's evolution towards independence. Morocco, Gilbert Grindel the, was appointed resident general. He sacked undisciplined and racist members of the, pol the police and government and brought back the exiled sultan. Yet violence continued to rage with the massacre of some 50 Europeans on the second anniversary of the sultan's exile. In response, some 1,000 Moroccans were put to death. In November, a joint declaration of independence was signed, and Morocco was granted independence in March 1956. In summation, the French Fourth Republic politically neglected its empire and foreign affairs so greatly that whatever stability and success they were able to achieve domestically were wiped out in the ensuing foreign policy crisis. The Fourth Republic was able to achieve a level of economic and political stability in the post-war period, the use of American aid, but it was short-sighted in dealing with the, its looming issues around her empire. In contrast to complex British plans and political maneuvering to maintain influence and reduce cost, France resorted to hard power and repression, which resulted in a loss of in international reputation and further political violence. France didn't use her neglected military to achieve political ends, but to terrorize people into submission a strategy that at best brought, bought time and at worst created more enemies than it killed. The French also learned the hard lesson that they couldn't escape their past in the divisions of the left-right politics no matter how much they tried. Issues around the French Republican tradition, Napoleon, and events in the 18th and 19th century continued to haunt the French 20th uh, century political landscape. This naturally is not the end of the story, or even the whole story, but a background piece to subsequent episodes about the French War in Indochina, the Suez Crisis, the Algerian Independence Movement, the rise of the Fifth French Republic, and de Gaulle. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share this episode on social media and with your friends and family. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history, help us by giving us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Don't forget to tune in in July the 15th as we examine the first half of the Indochina War. Don't forget to check out the photos for this episode on the website. And while there, feel free to follow us on social media at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you want to support us, please consider becoming a monthly contributor through Patreon for $5 or whatever amount you feel appropriate. As always, any contri contribution to no matter how small is greatly appreciated. Moreover, feel free to email us with questions and episode ideas. As always, if you haven't already done so, fill out the survey to help us to bring you a better show. 